This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of blood-sucking, murder, and disease. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about vampires. We've combined elements of Bram Stoker's Dracula, its unauthorized film adaptation Nosferatu, and traditional Romanian folk beliefs to illuminate the monster that struck terror in people's hearts in the 1920s. Vampires have a long and varied history, and we'll return to explore other aspects and depictions of this creature in future episodes. The skittering of rats preceded him. Mina reminded herself to breathe, trembling as she pretended to be fast asleep, an easy victim, a willing victim. She'd put up no fight, and allow the monster to ravish her. It was the only way. Mina had learned the truth that afternoon, what Jonathan didn't want her to know about their new neighbor, the one who wouldn't stop looking at her. Jonathan reminded her to never undress near a window, even with the shades drawn. Combine that with the quarantine, and Mina felt like a zoo animal. It made her stir-crazy. At first, she worried she was coming down with the plague herself, but she didn't feel sick. Instead, she felt mad. And in an act of madness, she ruined everything. She read the book she swore not to open, breaking the wax she'd sealed with her wedding ring. By breaking the vow, she invited chaos into her home. Now, there was only one way this could end. While her husband slept, she signaled the monster through the window, come to me, come take me, come. The shadow snuck in the back door. He crept up her stairway, ready to catch her unguarded. Mina flushed, barely able to keep still. She exposed her neck, ready for his fangs. 
The shadow loomed through the doorway. He approached her slowly, slower than Mina thought anything could move. She held her breath. His gray claws poked across the bed, then caressed up her nightdress. The shadow grabbed her heart and squeezed. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week, we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today, we're discussing Nosferatu, the bloodsucker, the dime store Dracula of the 1920s. When modern medical advances began keeping people alive past their expiration dates, this vampire struck a chord. Those presumed dead no longer were, and the freakish terror that invoked was embodied in the vampire. He's a monster who doesn't just break the laws of the land, but those of nature. Vampires have sucked on our attention for centuries, thriving on our fears. But they reached a new height in 1897, when Irish author Bram Stoker published his novel Dracula. While Stoker himself died nearly penniless, his vampiric publishers grew very, very rich. Not long after that, German occultist Albin Grau met a Serbian farmer who claimed his father was a vampire. Grau decided to make a movie about the experience. In classic Hollywood fashion, he and his business partner, Enrico Diekmann, opted to adapt Bram Stoker's novel instead of coming up with an original story. And in even more classic Hollywood fashion, they ripped it off instead of buying the rights. In 1922, Film released Nosferatu in Germany. It was a silent German expressionist horror film, and it was an international hit. Produced by Albin Grau and directed by F.W. Murnau, the film's striking imagery and use of a subjective point of view allowed viewers to feel the horror of the vampire alongside the protagonists. While subjectivity in filmmaking seems standard now, it was a groundbreaking concept in the 1920s. The movie was so horrifying, Sweden banned it entirely. However, Prana Film had been less than subtle in their adaptation of Dracula. In the original German version, a few names had been changed. Dracula to Count Orlock, Jonathan and Mina Harker to Thomas and Ellen Hutter, London to Bremen. Instead of vampire, the film used the Romanian term Nosferatu, but the plot and characters were sucked straight out of the novel. 
Bram Stoker's widow, Florence Balcom, was incensed. She sued in the United Kingdom and won. Prana Film went bankrupt, and the British government ordered all copies of the film destroyed. But just like a vampire, Nosferatu wouldn't simply die. At the time of the ruling, at least one copy of the film existed in the U.S., and under U.S. copyright laws, Dracula was in the public domain. It was also already in the public eye. Bella Lugosi had begun playing Dracula on Broadway in 1927. Copies of Nosferatu spread across American screens in 1929. It was viral, unstoppable. The single set of film reels that went to America spread to millions of people. Stoker's take on Romanian vampire legends, inspired by seven years of traditional folklore research, resonated anew with audiences of the 20th century. It led to an outbreak of vampires in American media, something the country still hasn't recovered from. But every epidemic has a patient zero. The first person exposed to the contagion, in the case of Nosferatu, the first victim could be considered to be unsuspecting real estate solicitor, Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker didn't fully understand why a count with a castle would want a drab Bremen house, but he was eager to please his boss, Mr. Renfield, so he went along with the instructions to sell the aristocrat a new home. He'd traveled deep into the Carpathian Mountains, ignoring the advice of the locals to turn back. Now he was staring up at the most impressive, isolated fortress he'd ever seen. A tall stone castle with wide, round doors, bats flying around the turrets. Jonathan wasn't bothered by the bats or the dying ivy. He'd been a solicitor for a few years now and instantly saw promise in the old bones of the castle. Just a modest renovation and the place could fetch a million pounds. Maybe he could convince the Count to sell it and upgrade to something even grander, earning Jonathan a fat commission. There were only opportunities here, he was certain of it. Jonathan chuckled at the thought of the locals, of their silly refusal to set foot outside after sunset and refusal to go within 50 miles of the place. Even the horses that brought him here were covered from head to hoof in tarp as if they'd be attacked on the road. They were all doing themselves a disservice, truly. He crossed the bridge, eager to show off his sales skills. The door opened seemingly on its own. Jonathan presumed the servants were trained to use extreme discretion. He made a mental note to do the same in his dealings with the Count. Jonathan strode through the courtyard, through another door that opened at his approach. As he entered, a tall, thin man came from the opposite door. He looked oddly like the servant who had driven Jonathan the last 50 miles, but dressed like an aristocrat. He seemed no more than 30, but had lost all his hair. Oversized ears punctuated his skull-like face. His saucer-shaped eyes were set in bruises, his sharp nose reminiscent of a rat's pointed muzzle. But most strikingly, 
He was pale as a corpse. He scolded Jonathan for being late. The servants had all already retired. He had already eaten himself, but obviously he'd have dinner with Jonathan anyway. The man cracked his fingers. They were long and skinny, like a pair of elegant spiders. Jonathan realized this man was the Count. He was too tall, too thin, too measured in his movements to be a mere servant. How could Jonathan have thought any less of him? He hid his embarrassment and followed the Count to dinner. However, his hunger subsided at a curious thought. If the servants were already in bed, who had been opening all the doors? The vampiric count of the 1920s certainly wouldn't be invited to the lunch table of hot teen vampires like Twilight's Edward Cullen, Angel of Buffy the Vampire Slayer fame, or the Vampire Diaries' Salvatore brothers. The count is too thin, too pale, with a face and hands reminiscent of a rat. Even his fangs are different from modern vampires. In the Nosferatu film, he has spiked incisors. The full effect is of a monster who looks, frankly, sick. In Romanian folklore, the vampire, derived from the fabled Strigoi, was often a harbinger of disease. And for people in the 1920s, nothing was scarier than rampant disease. They'd just survived the 1918 flu pandemic, which infected over 500 million people worldwide, over a fifth of the global population. If that wasn't enough, polio was on the rise. The virus had spiked in the U.S. in 1916 and built every year to another devastating outbreak in 1927. The odds of survival were the same as flipping a coin. And even those who did survive could face permanent symptoms. Polio infections can destroy the nervous system, resulting in anything from full paralysis to stiff, awkward movements. Anyone who had seen a polio patient would recognize those movements in actor Max Schreck's portrayal of the Count. He moves with inhuman slowness, as if he has all the time in the world. At one point, the Count glacially rises from his coffin, originating a move TV Tropes calls the pivotal wake-up. He goes from lying down to standing up without bending, as if he's pulled by a lever. The careful, measured movements only make this vampire even scarier. He's confident he'll catch his prey, eventually. An immortal creature he has all the time in the world. When the bread knife nicked Jonathan's finger, time ground to a halt. He felt as if his blood didn't flow at all, even as he watched it pool outside the wound. Jonathan's dinner was instantly forgotten. He was both mesmerized by the injury and horrified at the faux pas. Why hadn't he been more careful? Why hadn't he brought out the deed before eating? How could he sell the Bremen estate now? He kept bleeding. The Count rose. He plodded toward Jonathan, each step containing a certain weight. Jonathan reached to wipe the blood away, but the Count waved him off. 
yelling about spilled blood. Before Jonathan knew what was happening, his finger was in the Count's mouth. It felt as if he'd poked a snowball. The man's mouth felt like ice. Jonathan jumped away, pulling his hand toward his chest. He could barely process it. Had the Count been trying to suck his finger? Jonathan tried to excuse himself, but the Count moved slowly toward him, coming a few inches too close. Jonathan stepped back and back again. He realized the Count was backing him into a corner, into a chair. The Count motioned to it. Please, take a seat. The night is long, friend. It would be so nice to pass it together. Jonathan didn't know what to say. Maybe sucking the blood from a wound was a tradition of the Carpathian mountain region. But for Jonathan, it was a bridge too far. He'd met the man mere hours ago. He tried to excuse himself. But the look in the Count's eyes said remaining in his presence was not a request, but a demand. The Count then spoke to him in a low tone. And before he knew it, Jonathan passed out. Coming up, Jonathan sees the full extent of the Count's infectious power. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Jonathan Harker was trapped in the castle of a vampire count. Meanwhile, his wife, Mina, was staying with her friend Lucy in Bremen, Germany, and she was having nightmares. They came every night, consistent as the phases of the moon. But every sunrise, the nightmare's contents faded to a blur. There may have been something about her husband's boss, Mr. Renfield, and she thought she saw a castle or a bat. It was gray and hard to tell, the day was hardly more comfortable. Her waking mind was plagued with worry for Jonathan. She would have dismissed it all as nerves, if not for what Lucy had told her. Lucy said Mina didn't simply scream or thrash in bed during her nightmares. She sleepwalked. One night, Lucy awoke to her door slamming. Her husband was asleep beside her, but in the guest room, Mina was gone. Lucy rushed outside, yelling, but her calls to Mina were lost in gusts of wind. She saw a flash of a white nightdress cresting a distant hill and ran after it. Bare footsteps in the marsh led to the church cemetery. Lucy followed them. There she found Mina sitting on a gravestone, barefoot and fast asleep. Lucy took Mina's hand to lead her back to bed. At Lucy's touch, Mina screamed in horror, not at whatever she'd dreamed, but at finding herself in a graveyard in such a state of undress. 
Lucy stroked Mina's hair out of her face and helped her back to the house. She was relieved she'd found Mina, but couldn't shake her fears. What if the dreams made Mina do something worse, something unforgivable? While Lucy fretted over Mina, Mina herself was more preoccupied with concerns over her husband. Mina couldn't shake the feeling that he was in grave danger. She was right. The more time he spent inside the Count's mighty fortress, the less safe Jonathan felt. He was like a deer in an open meadow, game for any gentleman's rifle. The castle's furniture was slightly too large, spread too far apart. The rooms were endless, and Jonathan swiftly realized that at night, the Count locked him in his room. And every morning, there were two blood-red pinpricks on his neck. He tried to convince himself his bed had mites, two singular mites who bit him in the exact same spots every night as he slept, likely a new species unique to this region. He wasn't doing a very good job of convincing himself. But still, Jonathan remained in the castle, the Count was clearly wealthy, and Mr. Renfield had hinted there'd be a bonus in it for Jonathan if he did his job well. This afternoon, the deed and papers had finally been signed. The Count now owned a new Bremen home, across the street from Jonathan and Mina, no less. Jonathan was eager to return home, but the Count bid him to stay, and Jonathan knew just as the first night, that it was an order. He'd been up all night, stomach turning with worry. He wanted to write to Mina to tell her all about this strange business, but all he could manage on letter paper was a curt, delayed on business, do not worry, love Jonathan. He'd recorded his full experiences in his diary. Mina could read that when he was home assuming he returned. There was another book he was less certain about sharing with her. He'd picked it up in town, a souvenir of sorts. It was titled, The Book of Vampires. There was a thought he couldn't quite acknowledge, a theory he never wanted to voice, a worry he prayed was paranoia. But if he was honest with himself, he knew there was a link between this book and his host. He toyed with his pen. Perhaps he should write to Mina so she knew the full truth, just in case. Jonathan stared out the window, pursing his lips. That's when he saw the coffins. Scores of them, piled up like so many bricks, the Count, moving with impossible speed, was loading the coffins with dirt and rats. When the final coffin was in the wagon, the Count laid in it himself. The lid levitated upward and sealed itself around the vampire just as the sun began to rise. Jonathan couldn't be sure if any of the other coffins held bodies, or if one was meant for him. Why would an empty castle have dozens of coffins on hand? 
All he knew was that he needed to escape. The image of a vampire rising from their grave is rooted in medieval Romanian folklore, but the vampire's daily sleep within their coffin was cemented in Bram Stoker's Dracula. Coffins are, by nature, morbid. They're for the dead, and the dead alone. Rising from a coffin is among the clearest visual markers that a vampire should not be alive. But in the 1920s, spending time in a coffin only to rise from it healthy again took a whole new meaning. In 1927, two years before Nosferatu premiered in American theaters, Philip Drinker, John Haven Emerson, and Louis Agassiz Shaw Jr. invented the iron lung as a treatment for polio-induced respiratory failure. The medical device altered air pressure with precise regularity, effectively breathing for anyone inside it. The patient would lay inside for weeks, months, or years, kept alive in the face of death, defying nature. Eventually, they might re-emerge alive again. It was shaped like a coffin. While the iron lung is an incredible, life-saving device, it was also shocking and disturbing. Prior to the invention, the inability to breathe on one's own was a death sentence. Lying in a long box that breathed for you appeared to break the rules of nature. And yet, thousands of sick people were saved by it. The iron lung was a symbol of both disease and the chaos that comes when the rules you live and die by are rules no longer. And how can anyone feel safe in a world where those who should be dead come back to life? When he finally tore his eyes from the pile of coffins, Jonathan realized he was once again locked in his room. But if the Book of Vampires was to be believed, he had several hours of daylight before the Count awoke. Jonathan fashioned a rope from his bedsheets, scaling down the side of the castle and running away into the woods. He'd hitchhike back to Bremen if he had to. As the sun set over the castle that night, the coffin lid flew into the air. The Count climbed out, whistling for his horses. They trotted out from the stables, and their hitches connected themselves, latches clinking while the Count remained in his seat. The Count knew he didn't need his old servants. He'd be better off creating new ones. First, Renfield and then an entire city. He'd feed on them until they called him master and obeyed his every whim, all in the name of collecting more blood. Precious, precious blood. He didn't need Jonathan Harker either. He sensed the man had left, but couldn't be bothered to chase after him. Soon he would have a whole new country full of prey. The Count looked back to check on his coffins, each filled to the brim with unhallowed earth and rats. The dirt was vitally important. If he didn't sleep within unhallowed ground, he'd die the second death, the final one. Then it wouldn't matter how much blood he had or how many lives he collected. Without his coffin, 
he was nothing. Horses hitched, the wagon slowly rolled forward. The Count directed the horses to the harbor where he'd board a ship. All the while, he clutched the signed land deed Jonathan had left behind. He didn't need an invitation to the city. Bremen was his new home, and he was going to suck the blood out of it. Every last drop. On the journey home to Bremen, Jonathan resolved to never speak of his ordeal. His worries had dissipated somewhat. He didn't feel the cravings for blood that the book described. Perhaps the vampire hadn't feasted on him after all. Maybe it would all fade like a bad dream. As he wrapped his arms around Mina for the first time in months, he knew he wanted nothing more than a simple life with her. He couldn't burden her with the terrors he'd faced in the Carpathians. They'd settle into a peaceful, happy, married life. He kissed her hard, trying to focus on his wife's mouth and not the Count's. But when Mina pulled back from the kiss, her eyes belied fear instead of joy. As they sat down for dinner, she broke down crying. Jonathan, I want only honesty between us. His heartbeat quickened. He replied softly, Mina, there are things I cannot... She cut him off. You deserve to know. I've been sleepwalking, plagued by terrible nightmares. I was so worried for you. I feared I was going mad. Mina went on to tell him about her night terrors, Lucy's attempts to help, and even seeing a doctor who prescribed sleeping in wreaths of stinking white and purple garlic flowers. Mina showed him a long garland from the kitchen. She'd sleep in it again tonight. But that wasn't the end of it. Jonathan's boss, Mr. Renfield, had also been seen walking in his sleep. Then he was found eating a live cat in the town square. Now Mr. Renfield was in prison, yammering about his dark master while eating all the flies and spiders in his cell. He had gone absolutely mad. Mina worried she'd relapse into her sleepwalking illness and suffer the same fate as Mr. Renfield. Blood pounded in Jonathan's ears. Everything Mina described was straight out of the book of vampires, but she couldn't have read it. He hadn't taken it off his person since he returned. Jonathan reached inside his coat pocket. The book was still there, alongside his diary. He realized how scared he looked and took Mina's hand to reassure her. Mina, I love you more than life. Any illness you have, I'll be by your side. I only apologize I was not present for your ordeal this past month. Mina moved from her own chair to her husband's lap. She held him, shaking. Oh, Jonathan. Now was the time. He could tell her the full truth about the Count, but his tongue was lead in his mouth. Mina broke the silence. How was your trip? What was the Count like? Jonathan swallowed. He was haughty, cold. 
merely focused on business. I had to be... Mina, I need you to trust me. He withdrew the Book of Vampires and his diary from his coat. As he did so, he tore the cover off so Mina couldn't read the title. He said, There are things a man must endure alone, things he must move past. You are so very dear to me. I'm going to leave my notes in your possession so you may read them if you so wish. But Mina, I implore you, do not read this book. No need to worry your beautiful mind over the ills of the Carpathians. Mina frowned. Then she reached for the candle. The flame lit up her face. I'll do as you ask. To show my faith and my love, I'll seal the books with wax, so you'll always look on them and know my trust is never broken. Mina poured candle wax along the outer pages of the books. She pressed her wedding ring into the wax, forming a seal on each. I swear to you, my love, we'll never speak of these past months again. Jonathan kissed her forehead. They picked at their dinner, both without much appetite, and went to bed early. The next morning, Mina was reading the paper while Jonathan prepared for work. With Mr. Renfield jailed, he assumed he'd report to another senior solicitor. He had the countersigned house deed and was eager to be paid. He shaved, noting that the red marks on his neck had yet to fade. Jonathan ran his razor over them. Then he sliced. Just a small cut, a line of blood connecting the two wounds. Now there'd be no question it was a shaving accident. He could forget the original cause entirely. Jonathan was mopping up his blood when Mina called for his attention. It was so lovely to hear her voice again. Oh, did you hear a ghost ship came into the harbor last week? All the men were dead. The only thing on the ship were rats and a rabid dog. Jonathan called back, How morbid! What was the cargo? Mina rustled pages of the paper. Let me see here. Ah, the cargo. Oblong boxes filled with dirt. Some agricultural interest, I suppose. I feel sorry for those poor sailors. Mina prattled on her voice fading behind Jonathan's thoughts. Oblong boxes filled with dirt. Coffins filled with dirt. It couldn't be. There was no way, except the deed. How could he have not realized they'd signed the damned deed? The Count needed no more invitation than that. Jonathan ran to the bedroom window, looking across the street to the neighboring house, the house he'd sold to the vampire. From the window across the street, the Count stared back at him. Up next, Jonathan and Mina face down the vampire. Now back to the story. One of the scariest parts of an incurable viral disease is the feeling that one cannot run far enough or fast enough to escape exposure. If one such disease breaks out on a ship, the options are to die on board or drown in the ocean. 
when everyone's made their choice, there are only ghosts left to steer the ship, giving it the name Ghost Ship. One of the most famous ghost ship tales comes from the 1300s, when a ship arrived in a Norwegian harbor. The story goes that its only living passengers were rats, and those rats brought the Black Plague to Norway. The legend of this ship and hundreds of others struck fear in people's hearts for centuries. Through the 1920s, most international trade and travel was done via ships. Commercial aviation wouldn't become common until the aftermath of World War II. Anyone living in a port city at that time likely lived with the fear that a ghost ship would sail into the harbor, bringing with it a new infectious disease. But in the tale of Dracula, the ghost ship has a passenger among the rats, a vampire. Among the crew of corpses, one would walk again. Weeks had passed since Jonathan returned and the ghost ship docked in the harbor, but there was still a cloud over the Harkers, some barrier Mina couldn't break. As much as she and Jonathan wanted their lives to be ordinary again, they simply weren't. She began to wonder if the only reason her sleepwalking stopped was because she was no longer sleeping. It didn't help that there was something off about their new neighbor. Mina tried not to judge by appearances, though he looked very ill, dying even. Past that, he spent hours each night staring out the window. Mina couldn't help but feel like he was staring at her. When the neighbor wasn't in the window, she often saw him walking around at night, carrying a big rectangular box. He seemed to never leave home without it. Jonathan acted as if everything was fine, save one mention of keeping the bedroom curtains closed and staying away from the windows. That was all Mina needed to hear to know he agreed about their neighbor's strangeness and desired no further discussion on the matter. Since the fateful trip, he refused to speak on the specifics of his job, even when Mr. Renfield escaped prison, was caught, and escaped again. The city of Bremen went under quarantine in hopes no one would catch Renfield's mysterious illness. Every night, they both slept in garlic wreaths and said nothing of it in the morning. Things might have gone on this way forever if Lucy hadn't died. The loss of Mina's best friend was devastating, but even more upsetting was the manner in which she died. Lucy had wasted away slowly, growing paler by the day, odd red marks on her neck, until one night, she was no more. Mina spoke to the constable and learned that Mr. Renfield had similarly strange red marks on his neck. Then she saw the marks on Jonathan. He said he cut himself shaving, but shaving accidents always healed. These didn't. Mina could no longer stand it. When Jonathan was at work, she broke the seal on his book and read his journal. She learned how the Count held him captive and drank his blood. 
how Jonathan thought he escaped, but accidentally allowed the vampire to follow him back to take up residence next door. She picked up the other book, ripped off the wax, and read the title page, The Book of Vampires. Mina quickly came to three conclusions. Her neighbor had been watching her, that same neighbor was the mysterious Count Jonathan visited, and the Count was a vampire. She flipped to the first page of the Book of Vampires and began reading. She learned that vampires were immortal demons who could create more vile creatures at will or by accident. Anyone who lost too much blood to a vampire's kiss would become one themselves. And if no one stopped it, the entire town of Bremen would become blood-sucking beasts. At the last page, Mina held her breath. It read, Only a woman can break the spell, a woman pure of heart, who offers her blood freely to Nosferatu and will keep him by her side until after the cock has crowed. So that was why Jonathan didn't want her to read it. He didn't want her to face the temptation of self-sacrifice, or the guilt if she chose to save herself by keeping the vampire by her side past dawn. But Mina knew the truth now. The seal was broken. The sign of her vow to Jonathan scattered in wax on the floor. He still wouldn't want her to make the sacrifice, so she'd have to ensure it was already too late before he found out. That night, Mina gave Jonathan a long kiss. For him, it was goodnight. For her, it was goodbye. She waited beside him until he fell asleep, then woke him up, frantic, faking sick and yelling she'd had a nightmare about eating spiders. While Jonathan ran for Dr. Van Helsing, Mina opened her window and invited the Count into her bed. He seemed confused at first, almost questioning that she could want him. But as he crept to the window, he lifted his arms as if possessed by a desire to hold her. Mina could barely admit it to herself, but she felt the same. She knew she wasn't supposed to want this, but her heart beat faster as she thought of the monster looking in at her warm body. He was a dead, sick thing, but all she wanted was to give the vampire pleasure, to succumb to his beastly desires. She saw the dark shadows in the doorway well before she saw the Count, long and thin, like a procession of knives, the vampire climbed the stairs slowly, as if every movement was painful. The dark form reached out to her, fingers permanently bent like claws. The shadowy claws clutched her heart. It hurt, but the pain thrilled her. All Mina's blood flowed to her neck, and it swelled ripe and ready for the vampire's lips. Before he entered, he took control of her body, 
pushing her onto the bed, spreading her limbs wide. She'd be easier for him to take this way. Mina didn't fight it. The Count flew to the bed and bit her hard. Hours later, the Count rolled off of Mina's dead body. Nothing tasted as good as a woman who answered his call. He rose from the bed. He must make haste or the blood would be wasted. The Count felt a sudden dizziness coming on. He'd spent too long with beautiful Mina, too long away from his coffin. His lungs contracted. He gasped, something wicked creeping up the stairs and the walls. Sunlight. His chest cramped, his heart slowed. The Count reached out to shield himself, but found his long arms rushing back into his chest and neck as he doubled over, coughing in violent rasps. He tried to move out of the sun's rays, but the light spread to fill the room around him. His splayed fingers reached for help, but he couldn't walk in either direction. The Count was paralyzed by the sun. He caught fire in a burst of glorious flame. The vampire disintegrated. When Jonathan Harker and Dr. Van Helsing returned, they found Mina's body drained of blood and a pile of ashes glinting in the light of the sunrise. Thanks to the spirit of one brave woman, vampires would never plague Bremen again. Dying in the light of the sun feels as intrinsic to vampire lore as bloodsucking. However, this bit of mythology originates with Nosferatu. Supposedly, director F.W. Murnau lost the last few pages of his script during filming. Instead of asking for another copy, he decided to make up his own ending on the spot. Temptation and the rising sun would kill his vampire. Romanian folklore dictated that vampires should be decapitated. In the novel Dracula, the monsters are killed through removing or staking to the heart. But for his adaptation, Murnau had the sun's rays paralyze the Count before he burst into flames. Thanks to Murnau's improvisation, the sun has killed more undead than Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The more notable change Murnau made to the ending of Dracula was sacrificing Mina. In the novel, she, spoilers, lives happily ever after with her husband Jonathan. But in Nosferatu, Mina dies with the stifling shadow of the vampire. Stifling, like a disease that paralyzes the lungs. In the 1920s, America was still 30 years from a polio vaccine, and even with the iron lung, a polio diagnosis was often a death sentence. Like Mina, awaiting the slow creep of the vampire up the stairs, patients who felt symptoms coming on could do nothing but await the inevitable. The Count in Nosferatu was the vampire for his time, an allegory for an incurable disease and the horror of living with it. 
alive when they should be dead, spreading at an unstoppable rate, vampires force us to confront that which we cannot control. And like strains of deadly viruses, vampires are constantly evolving. Over the decades, the immortal creature has reflected contemporary illnesses. Nosferatu tickled fears of polio, but the more recent True Blood tapped into the terrifying AIDS crisis, and Twilight bluntly compares vampirism to heroin addiction. As long as people are fearful of and fascinated by sickness, stories about vampires will remain viral. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Vanessa Richardson.